National Archives podcast series, The Creation of the Iraqi State, 1914-1974. It was for me to really, I suppose, give a, a rationale for why is it that we should be interested in the history of Iraq. And um, this is a political rationale in the sense that I'm a political scientist, not a historian primarily. Uh, and for me, of course, I think one of the most important things in trying to understand contemporary politics is to get a sense of history and no better opportunity than to do so through uh, the archive here uh, since the British were in on the making of Iraq. Uh, one has to get a sense of what it was that they created. What did they set in motion uh, by setting up this distinctive state uh, that shaped its politics uh, over the years to come? So my talk is going to be looking at uh, the future uh, of Iraq in the light of its history, mainly looking at uh, British state building and the consequences of British state building. Um, not looking at the contemporary world very much, but at the end, I suppose, seeing do, are there any resonances there, uh, are there any patterns there that uh, help to understand uh, contemporary Iraq, but not just contemporary Iraq in the immediate sense, but contemporary Iraq in the sense of Iraq in the late 20th century and what it has become now. Um, I suppose one of the things that's striking is that if one looks at Iraq in 1919-1920, uh, a time which is very well covered in the archive here and very richly covered, there is a strangely contemporary ring uh, to events in that period um, in a number of ways. First of all, there was the obvious uncertainty that comes out of the archive very clearly about the, uh, about the future of Iraq by British officials themselves. That is very different visions of the future of what Iraq should become, or even if Iraq should become anything at all uh, amongst many British officials uh, serving in Iraq at the time. Particularly and notoriously, there was, if you like, a divide uh, between British officials in Iraq, uh, but among those who felt that uh, Mesopotamia or Iraq should be subject to a prolonged British occupation, direct British rule, uh, and incorporation into the British Empire not a sense, in other words, of the bringing of Iraq to independence. But there was another camp amongst British officialdom in Iraq at the time who, on the contrary, uh, were very much taken with Arab nationalism, uh, with an Arab nationalist elites who many had fought with or encouraged during the First World War, and who believed that, on the contrary, uh, Iraq should be brought to independence as a modern state uh, and nevertheless uh, under British tutelage or British protection uh, or British guidance in one form or another, a notion of indirect rule. And that, to some extent, marked uh, very much part of the uncertainty uh, in the early years, 1919, 1920. But interestingly, of course, as well, these weren't just disputes within the British officialdom in Iraq. It fed directly into, again, one could argue, uh, quite familiar territorial disputes in Whitehall itself. That is, back in the uh, metropolis, there were rivalries amongst different Whitehall agencies about who should control Mesopotamia policy uh, between the Foreign Office, the Colonial Office, uh, between the uh, War Office and others, uh, getting some sense about who should in the end have the last say uh, in Iraq itself and determining what Iraq should become. And of course, more importantly, and again with a contemporary ring, there was growing popular discontent and political discontent about British presence in Iraq at all. Uh, the argument being put that uh, it was costing too much in terms of money, uh, it was costing too many British lives, and why bother to be there at all? Why not just get out uh, of Mespot, as it was rather uh, unflatteringly called? 
But that, in a sense, has a slightly contemporary ring about, um, if you like, the perplexities of uh, British officialdom in Iraq uh, and what to do about Iraq, whether to stay there, what to uh, turn it into. But if you look at what was happening in the future territories of what was to become Iraq, uh, some of the similarities are even more uncanny. There was no national authority uh, in Iraq. There was no Iraqi government. There was no Iraqi uh, national authority. What there were were lots of local authorities in different districts. In a sense, forms of local power competing with each other, uh, trying to establish their authority in different places. Um, this was accompanied by mass dismissals by the British of uh, officials and army officers from the old Ottoman administration, uh, many of whom joined the resistance and uh, the resistance which was, for many of them, based in Syria. So in a sense, uh, again, having uh, a strangely contemporary ring to it. There were mass demonstrations in Baghdad, bag, uh, demonstrations about unemployment, about the hopeless economic situation, about the inability of the British to provide jobs for many of the people they'd thrown out of work, uh, and of course, uh, demonstrations about national independence, about getting the British out uh, altogether of uh, Iraq itself. There was uh, British suspicion of uh, much of the Iraqi population uh, and uh, an attempt to explain why so much of the Iraqi population felt not altogether enthralled by the presence of British uh, forces and British troops. And this was explained satisfactorily as far as many British officials were concerned by either blaming it upon the Shia clerics who were fanatical, uh, retrograde and deeply influenced by uh, Persia uh, and therefore, of course, inimical to uh, British uh, presence in Iraq, or it was blamed upon foreign agitators, foreign fighters, in this case, Bolsheviks, uh, people infiltrated from the new Soviet Union uh, who had uh, made it their business to disrupt the British Empire, and Iraq was a place uh, in which the British Empire could be confronted because Britain was weak uh, in Iraq. There was at the same time a rigged plebiscite called uh, a national election, which of course was uh, returned the um, almost unanimous vote in favor of British uh, presence and rule in Iraq, but most Iraqis knew exactly what had gone on in the making of it. There was unrest in Kurdistan as the Kurds began to wonder about what was the future of their autonomy, which they had hitherto enjoyed de facto uh, in a British run or a strongly centralized uh, Iraqi state. And, of course, these percolating forms of uncertainty in British officialdom and um, resentment in various sectors of the Iraqi population lead to the explosion of 1920, the great Iraqi revolt, which uh, effectively drove the British out of most of southern Iraq uh, and uh, lasted for some five or six months uh, before the British uh, effectively suppressed it, costing the lives of some 500 or so British and Indian uh, troops and the lives of possibly four to 5,000 uh, Iraqis in the process, um, and leaving a legacy of various rather ambivalent kinds upon Iraqi history ever since. So I don't want to overdo it. I don't think history does re uh, repeat itself, but there are, in a sense, fairly contemporary um, echoes there in, in those events of 1919, 1920, much of which you'll see very well documented uh, within the archive itself. But what I want to look at more importantly is, as it were, the structural legacy of the kind of state that the British created in Iraq, which one can see the rationale for the means of doing so uh, in much of the National Archive. And to do this, I want to select four aspects of Iraqi history that I think 
uh, were set in motion in a very distinctive way uh, by the way the British set up the Iraqi state and I think had a very uh, influential effect upon the future development of Iraqi politics and Iraqi political history, an effect which I would argue quite strongly is still felt very much today, uh, even after the events of 2003. And the four aspects that I want to highlight are, first of all, what I call the founding of the dual state in Iraq, a two-faced state, uh, a state which faced in two different directions. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that uh, later on. Secondly, uh, the establishment of effectively oligarchic authoritarian rule from the center, uh, a prescription uh, followed very effectively and very ruthlessly by subsequent rulers of Iraq, but certainly established in important ways by the British uh, themselves. The third theme, I think, is uh, to look at the role played by armed force and the Iraqi armed forces in the British vision for the state uh, of Iraq. And the, third, and the fourth theme, the final theme, is to look at the political economy uh, that the British set in motion, the political economy of land and then the political economy of oil, when oil became uh, the major economic resource of Iraq itself. In all of these four areas, I'm going to argue, uh, the British set up, with the collaboration of sections of the Iraqi population, clearly enthusiastic collaboration in many senses, uh, a very distinctive kind of state. And that state... Uh, worked through history, was reproduced, and as I said, uh, I'll say at the end, how one feels that elements of that state are still to be felt uh, in their impact in Iraq, even though in some senses the state of Iraq was dismantled in 2003, aspects of its political trajectory have not been, uh, and part of that political trajectory comes out of uh, the four uh, structural elements I shall be talking about uh, this evening. First of all, the first one, that is, what do I mean by the founding of the dual state of Iraq? Um, the sort of ambivalent legacy uh, of uh, the British in founding two states. What I mean by that is effectively that the British set up two kinds of state in Iraq as organizations of power. One was the public state, and the other was a state which I've called in other contexts the shadow state, a state of patronage, of unofficial networks, of informal power. So on the one hand, um, when you looked at the British, and you see it very much in the writings of uh, uh, British officials involved in uh, the establishment of the Iraqi state, you see the British arguing and trying to implement the model of an efficient, highly centralized, bureaucratized state, shared, uh, a vision shared in many ways by the modernizing uh, Ottoman elite uh, that lived in Mesopotamia, that had served the Ottoman Empire, and in the last 50 or 60 years of the Ottoman Empire, had in a sense shared many of these visions of a modern bureaucratic state, the kind of uh, efficient modern state that would be the uh, generator of power. And at the same time, of course, the British were seeking to establish, as was made clear in the Constitution of the 1920s, a parliamentary democracy, a constitutional monarchy, uh, and uh, one which would operate according to the Westminster model, as it was often uh, cited by British officials. And in fact, of course, this was after all the claim and the rationale of the mandate system itself. It wasn't to rule uh, the mandated territories such as Iraq as colonies. It was on the contrary to bring them to independence as modern, centralized, parliamentary, democratic, constitutional states. So in a sense, that's, that informs a lot of what the British were trying to do. If you look at the kinds of things that they were officials were arguing about, uh, directions from Whitehall, 
and of course the public rationale uh, in, uh, in the League of Nations uh, forum as well. But there was another kind of operation going on, and you see that equally uh, argued for uh, in uh, the British Archive. And that was effectively that this whole system of setting up a modern, bureaucratic, parliamentary, constitutional state was actually being operated by British uh, officials, political officers, who I would argue had a very weak attachment to the idea of democracy. Uh, as an ideal and as a practice, they had a rather romanticized version of what British democracy was about, but actually a true contempt for what British democratic society was about. And there was a sense in which they were reproducing, they were trying to reproduce in Iraq or trying to avoid the mistakes in Iraq uh, that they think had been thought had been committed in Britain itself. There was therefore uh, a mixture of uh, British political officers entrusted with the establishment of a constitutional democratic state who had very little time for this in, uh, in many ways. There were also, amongst many of the British political officers, those who held very fixed colonial and indeed uh, in a sense, uh, views established through their service in India or Africa or Egypt, colonial views about the capacity of Iraqis, whether categorized as Arabs, Turks, Kurds, or Persians, to make democratic institutions work. So in a sense, you had already this feeling that we're making it work, but it's not really appropriate, and therefore we must find some other means. And so what they did instead to make power work was not to operate through democratic institutions, but rather to operate through networks of association, of relation, of family, of local communities and local notables, operating in an, an unaccountable environment, or rather an environment that was largely accountable uh, to Great Britain. It was, again, a readily adopted model of the native state uh, that the British had taken from other parts of their empire, in which you use traditional authorities, uh, notable families, to exercise a form of indirect rule. And so while at the same time as the British were in a sense proclaiming the virtues of democracy, they on the one hand believed that uh, no Iraqi could ever be a democrat and therefore it wasn't worth bothering and what you had to do was to uh, use the forms of power that Iraqis respected. And when any Iraqi actually tried to be a democrat, tried to operate according to the constitution uh, or the, the laws of the land, there was a kind of contempt of what they call the offendees, the horror of the offendees, a, a very contemptuous phrase that Iraq has become a nation of lawyers. In other words, quite rightly, the Iraqis were arguing the toss with the British officials, and the British didn't like that very much. So in a sense, the whole possibility of democratic accountability was being, you could say, subverted right from the beginning. So I think I would argue this has had a very powerful influence on the kind of state that emerged in Iraq. You have a public state which may claim all sorts of forms of legitimation, constitutional, parliamentary, people's republic, and so on. But underneath it, you have another kind of state, another kind of, uh, and in some ways, much more effective uh, network of power. That, I think, feeds into the second uh, feature that I would, I would like to draw attention to, I think, which is the perhaps almost inevitable um, emergence of oligarchic authoritarian rule uh, from the center. In other words, the British in Iraq were trying to make the state work. It meant, in other words, looking for those amongst Iraqis who seemed able to share what I would call this rather curious dual British view of uh, order and power. They were looking for those who could operate both the formal and the informal networks of Iraqi society, the formal machinery of the state, but backed up, in a sense, by how well they're plugged in they were to the 
informal networks of society. They were also looking for Iraqis who could share their view of uh, a state project that was secular, conservative, and Arab. And those were the three criteria in many ways that come out of uh, the, the literature. And the consequence of this was that not only did it privilege a certain kind of rule, as I would argue, oligarchic, authoritarian, but it also privileged two kinds of Iraqi, uh, who then became, in some senses, enthusiastic practitioners of this dual state uh, in Iraq itself. One kind of Iraqi were the ex-Ottoman officials, their families, drawn largely from Arabo-Turkish uh, stock, largely Sunni sections of society, not exclusively, uh, but very heavily weighted in that favor. The people who had been the true servants of the Ottoman Empire, both in a sense in its traditional guise uh, before the reforms of the 19th century, but also in the uh, after the 19th century reforms. So that was one group of Iraqis whom the British saw as having a broadly similar and uh, sympathetic view of uh, the kind of state they wanted to create it. There were arguments with them about how much British control there should be over this state and whether the Iraqis should control it themselves, but the vision of the state was, was broadly similar. And the other kind of Iraqi who were privileged in this kind of order were uh, the tribal sheikhs, the, the tribal sheikhs who looked like, to the British or British political officers in the time, looked like the kinds of local notables through whom the British Empire exercised power across the globe. They looked like the sorts of people you chose to be the stalwarts of local order. Um, they were also subject to uh, quite a good deal of, as it were, what I call chivalric romanticism, uh, a kind of projection onto the tribal sheikh, who may have been a quite unlikely recipient of this, of a kind of feudal nobility. A notion, again, some would argue, uh, which was an escape from what Britain had become, a kind of romanticization of a pre-industrial, pre-democratic past uh, that the Iraqis had still managed to retain in all their feudal tribal splendor. So again, you see these two versions coming out and two groups of Iraqis very heavily favored uh, in this regard, encapsulated very much in the tribal disputes legislation uh, or regulations uh, that were brought in and that existed until 1958, uh, which effectively created two jurisdictions, two jurisdictions in Iraq, a rural and an urban. And the rural one was largely in the hands of the tribal sheikhs, excluded from uh, any kind of uh, purview of parliament or the executive. It operated almost in a sense as another kind of Iraqi uh, hinterland. And so, again, the British, who had taken this particular form of legislation from their Indian empire, saw this as highly appropriate to, uh, to um, foster the kind of traditional feudal tribal society that they believed would bring order to rural uh, Iraq. So under this guise, therefore, the state becomes a vehicle for power and privilege and wealth from those who are in at the start. And when one looks at those who were in at the start, it was largely the state servants, the people taken on to serve this new state, uh, army officers and the Hashemite court, the people close to the uh, Hashemite dynasty whom the British had installed uh, on Iraq, again, after a rather bogus form of referendum, as well as the tribal sheikhs who could be co-opted into this system, both Shia and Sunni. In a sense, there was no uh, uh, discrimination in that regard. The question was, how could you bring them in to a system that was now going to protect their land holdings and therefore giving them a stake in a system that gave them unequal power uh, over uh, their countrymen? But just as, in a sense, that kind of state, that kind of rationale 
drew in and relied upon two kinds of Iraqis uh, at the outset. It also provided a mechanism for excluding other kinds of Iraqis. And the Iraqis that it excluded were regarded by the British and to some extent by their successors as untrustworthy for a whole variety of uh, reasons. There were the Kurds. They were troublesome, difficult, bloody-minded, independent, uh, untrustworthy, and wholly unsuited in the British view uh, to uh, the collaboration in a modern state. And perhaps the most blatant expression of this, of course, is in the notorious report given by, well, cooked up effectively by the British authorities in Nuri Said uh, in 1931 to the League of Nations, in which uh, they had to respond to the quite understandable uh, concerns about the, from the Kurds uh, that uh, Iraqi independence would mean the end of any kind of uh, autonomy or cultural recognition of Kurdistan. And uh, in this extraordinarily fictitious piece of paper that the British and, and the forthcoming Iraqi government uh, presented to the League of Nations, uh, promises were made of a kind that were never kept in Kurdistan about autonomy, about cultural respect, about language, uh, about care for minorities, uh, which uh, quite rightly many Kurds have looked back upon as the beginning of the betrayal. So in a sense, there was a collusion, one could argue, between the British authorities and the future Iraqi authorities in the subordination of Kurdistan. They were not going to be part of the picture uh, in the same way. But there was another community that was, uh, to some extent, excluded as well. And that was uh, not so much a community, but the leaders of the Shia religious communities. Uh, the initial, in other words, concern about the clerics who led the Shia uh, being fanatical, obscurantist, and altogether too close to, the, uh, uh, to their uh, fellow clerics in uh, Iran. And in many senses, uh, it's often been argued in 1923-24, the Shia clerics shot themselves in the foot by, as it were, doing a mass migration of protest uh, to uh, Qom. Uh, some of them uh, returned thereafter. But in many senses, it was the end of formal power by the uh, Shia clerics in Iraq. They were still leaders of the community, but they were not part of the political scene. Insofar as they were part of the political scene, they were brought in as appendages of the Hashemite court. And a third group who was excluded, very obviously, were the radical social reformers. That is, Iraqis who didn't identify themselves with one ethnic group, one sectarian group, but who saw the inequality and the injustice of the kind of social order that the British were establishing in Iraq and protested against it. And they were eliminated. They were Bolshevik agitators. Uh, they were to be categorized as people excluded from the kind of state uh, that the British were uh, trying to establish. So, in short, if you weren't, as an Iraqi, recognized by the British and uh, their particular circles as useful in some way in the particular state project they were creating and the social order, then you were marginalized. And again, I would argue that has a legacy uh, in the future of Iraq, which is going to be quite troublesome, to say the least, uh, in its political future. The third structural feature, which in a sense, again, one could argue was very much part of the British pattern of uh, state building in Iraq, and that was, of course, the emphasis placed on the Iraqi armed forces. Uh, the Iraqi armed forces are uh, famous for being the first institution of the Iraqi state, established before the monarchy, before the parliament, before the constitution, before many of the uh, ministries. Uh, they were established effectively 
uh, to uh, act as an internal policing force. Uh, and so for the British um, model, as it were, they were going to be a key cornerstone in the building of the state. Uh, the Iraqi armed forces, in some sense, I think being correctly said, in some ways antedate the state or were in at the very foundation of the state itself. And for understandable reasons, first of all, the Iraqi armed forces were going to extend the reach of central government. Uh, the notion, in other words, that uh, one of the problems in creating the new territorial boundaries of Iraq uh, and the new territorial extent of Iraq was that the British had little control over much of it. And you needed an Iraqi army, an Iraqi security force to, uh, to do something about it. It was also, I suppose, which is part of this, all to, intended to alter the, the balance of power between uh, the central government and the tribes. Um, when the Iraqi armed forces were established in the early 1920s, the, um, they were thought to, uh, well, they had something like uh, 50,000 rifles between them. It was estimated that the population of Iraq, the tribal population of Iraq, had something like uh, nearly, or perhaps even quarter of a million rifles between them. Uh, and at that stage, before air power uh, became effective, as it was to become, before armored uh, uh, power was to become effective, that notion of the imbalance of power between, as it were, the rural tribal folk of Iraq and the central state was something that the British wanted to redress. And they did it partly by co-opting tribal sheikhs into the system of power, but also, of course, by building up an Iraqi army uh, that would be well um, uh, armed and well equipped to not only enforce the disarmament of sections of the Iraqi population, but also to enforce revenue collection. Uh, again, to reinforce this notion that the center should control uh, the rest. And also, the Iraqi army was used to as it were, assert central power when traditional authorities became a bit too traditional in their demand for independence and autonomy, uh, and in a sense, therefore, very much an instrument of uh, provincial repression uh, to uh, answer provincial uh, unrest with the armed forces were a very common idiom, uh, whether it was the Royal Air Force doing it, whether it was the British forces, or whether it was the Iraqi army or the, the emerging uh, Iraqi uh, Air Force. It was also quite clearly all, uh, in 1921, remember, a year, less than a year after the uh, Iraqi revolt, it was a way of employing the officers who were out of work. It was often a way of employing officers who had actually been part of the Iraqi uh, revolt. That is, out of work officers of the Iraqi army, some of whom had been active in 1920, but were forgiven and co-opted. You can already see a very different attitude to those kinds of rebels of 1920 to, for instance, some of the Shia tribal rebels, to some of the Kurdish rebels. They were not incorporated uh, in the same way into the structures of the new state. And inevitably, in the sense of redeploying the 600 or so uh, Ottoman officers of the Iraqi armed forces as, uh, to be the basis of the Iraqi armed forces, it favored certain sections of uh, society as well. In other words, the very sections of society that the Ottoman army had drawn upon uh, to recruit its officer corps. Um, provincial Sunni, largely Arab, Turkish, and Kurdish communities. Again, not exclusively, but very heavily represented in the Ottoman uh, army, and so too in the emerging Iraqi army. And within it, of course, there was a notion that it was going to be a relatively small uh, policing force, a force used to ensure uh, internal order and to build the state. This was the whole point of the Iraqi armed forces. It was to build the Iraqi state. So again, one could argue that has a certain... Uh, resonance for the future as well. Of course, many Iraqis had a much more ambitious aim 
uh, for the Iraqi armed forces. And people like Jafar al-Askari and others uh, had a view that you should have a large conscript army in Iraq to build the nation. It wasn't just about state building, it was about nation building. To, in other words, uh, give Iraqis a common experience of national service to, as it were, draw them into a common uh, national uh, endeavor. And endless arguments between the British and the Iraqi authorities, both under the mandate and after the mandate, about the size of the Iraqi army. Partly it's because the British felt they were going to have to uh, foot the bill and also they were worried about the social protests that might emerge if uh, large numbers of Iraqis were conscripted uh, into the armed forces. But increasingly, it was also about Iraqi military adventurism uh, in the hands of officers who were not particularly friendly uh, to British interests. So in a sense, there was a, a concern about an expanded Iraqi military potential, not just a numerical army. The fourth theme, though, I think is worth uh, saying something about, because in a sense, it underpins what was going on in the political economy under this curious structure of the dual state, the oligarchic state, and uh, increasingly uh, a state in which the armed forces played such a prominent part. And this was the political economy of land ownership and then increasingly of oil. And again, amongst British officials, there were very different ideas at first about um, the ideal patterns of land ownership. And partly that was to do with uh, different ideas in British political life, colonial life, about what kind of land ownership pattern produces the ideal form of social order and stability. Some favoured very much the romanticised sheikhs as the great, as I said, semi-feudal landowners. It, they were to be the bulwarks of a new Iraqi order. Drawing them into a system where they owned vast tracts of land was to give a stability uh, to rural Iraq, which had hitherto uh, evaded it. Others favored much more small land holdings. That is, the, 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 the foundation of a stable Iraq would not lie in huge landowners and landless peasants, but would lie rather in small landholders, uh, that uh, people who had a stake but had uh, a relatively modest stake in the land. And to some extent, those two patterns of landholding were practiced across Iraq in different places, but in different emphases and in many ways, um, the, although both systems were in place under British rule, those with the greater political clout clearly came from the, uh, the, the large landowning uh, tribal sheikhs. So in a sense, they became very much a feature of the political landscape uh, in Iraq uh, under the British rule and then under British uh, influence, producing very repressive legislation, such as the 1930s uh, legislation, which tried to tie peasants to their land uh, in Amara, precisely because the conditions were so dreadful uh, that many of them were uh, migrating to the shanty towns around Baghdad in protest. And one way of trying to uh, deal with this was to pass, in fact, never very successfully enforced legislation uh, to tie the peasants to the land uh, in some form or another. So one could see already that the whole notion of land was used as a currency of patronage, of tying people to a certain kind of state. And I would argue that when oil came into the equation, uh, it was used in much the same way when oil revenues. The main people to profit from the oil uh, were, of course, the Iraq Petroleum Company, the largely British-owned uh, uh, Iraq Petroleum Company. But also, of course, profiting from it was the oligarchy in charge of central Iraqi government. And they, they passed its privileges on to their allies in one form or another in the name of development. And the uh, famous uh, Iraq Development Board, which had British and American uh, partners on it, became in, one, in many senses a way of favoring through large development projects the very landholders who had benefited so well from the political economy of land itself. 
uh, and many people have argued still about what the consequence of this uh, was upon the 1958 uh, revolution. In other words, looking at a political system which reinforced and built the oil revenues into a system already skewed in favor of uh, the large landholders. So I would argue if you're looking at uh, the political history, if you're looking at the history of Iraq and the kind of state that the British were founding, those are four themes that I think have a powerful and in some senses uh, were to form, a, a, have a future resonance on Iraqi politics of a quite significant kind. And what I want to end on is really thinking about how those four themes, how those four structures have actually shaped Iraqi politics one way or another. You'll be glad to know I'm not taking you through the next 75 years of Iraqi politics, but to get a sense of how they were built upon by successive rulers, including Saddam Hussein. Uh, and to see Saddam Hussein, therefore, and the kind of rule that he established, as in some senses peculiar, but in many senses forming part of a pattern. If you think about the dual state in Iraq, this curious, ambivalent, two-faced organization that the British had set up of the public state and behind it another kind of organization of power. Well, one could argue that Saddam Hussein perfected it, and one could also argue that the international community conspired in sharpening it. And what I mean by that is that the public state continued, uh, but was uh, in the period certainly from 1990 to 2003 under the sanctions effectively destroyed. Uh, by that I mean the public ministries of communication, health, education, um, even the Ba'ath Party to some extent itself, even uh, the armed forces. The, in other words, what the sanctions managed to do in the 1990s was to destroy uh, or weaken uh, the public state in Iraq, uh, weakening state capacity and creating shortages. And in 2003, one could argue the war virtually finished it off, not simply the war itself, the looting of ministries in Baghdad, the dismantling effectively of the public state. So one of the ironies of the sanctions regime was the notion that if you weaken the state through sanctions, the government would submit to pressure. But the point is, in Iraq, there were always two states. And I would argue that sanctions effectively destroyed the public state, but reinforced the other state, the shadow state. And what it did effectively was to reinforce the networks of privilege, uh, of access, of family, of clans, of tribal clans, uh, of associates and opportunists who formed the core of the shadow state around Saddam Hussein, just as they had formed the core of shadow states around Nuri Said, uh, around uh, Abdul Karim uh, Qasim, under the Arif brothers as well. What the effect, in other words, of 1990 to 2003 was to strengthen these networks of privilege and discrimination. And Sadly, uh, as this uh, system became stronger, uh, so, of course, uh, the public utility of the public state began to decline. And again, I, one could argue that there's strong evidence since 2003 uh, that uh, the shadow state in one form or another is alive and well. In fact, in various forms, is alive and well. There are certainly elements of Saddam's shadow state are very much alive. One of the problems of that's often cited of the so-called insurgency in Iraq is its flat nature. In other words, it seems to have no leadership but is very effective. Well, of course it does because it comes out of precisely the kind of networks of self-defense, uh, self-protection that had emerged and been encouraged to emerge under Saddam Hussein. But with Saddam Hussein gone, they are sustaining themselves. So in a sense, one could argue that if you look to the resistance in Iraq, you're looking to some extent at 
the remnants, not just of Saddam's shadow state, but of the kinds of association that had emerged uh, under that kind of organization. But equally, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that new networks are being uh, established, and some old ones are colonizing the newly established state machinery. If you look at the Ministry of Interior in Iraq now, the Ministry of Defense, or the Ministry of Education, these are, they have both a public face, but they have another face. And in a sense, uh, what we're seeing is perhaps the establishment of new forms of shadow state organization operating within the public institutions of the Iraqi state. So the shadow state, the public state, is still very much a feature of uh, Iraqi politics. Equally, the whole question of oligarchy and authoritarian state. And I suppose one of the, the um, features of Iraq now is that there is no central oligarchy. There is no central authoritarian state. On the contrary, I would argue that there are local oligarchies since 2003 have effectively been fighting each other to bring about some kind of national oligarchy or statewide oligarchy. Uh, and I think this helps explain much of the violence that you see and that so terribly marks the life of Iraqis uh, and that one sees very much in evidence uh, in Iraq at the moment. In other words, what effectively is happening is that local uh, power is seeking recognition from other local powers to be cut in on the deal of perhaps recreating a national oligarchy uh, in Iraq itself. One would argue that this is very much the model, and some would say the imitated model, of Kurdistan where precisely that pattern happened uh, during the 1990s. Two powerful oligarchies fought a bloody war, which cost perhaps four or 5,000 Kurdish lives uh, in Iraq, uh, in uh, northern Iraq, in the 1990s, but came to a resolution that they would divide the spoils between the KDP and the PUK, and it's exactly what's happened. So in a sense, what one might think of is that what you're looking at now is effectively the emergence of forms of power and forms of violence to establish a claim to be part of the national oligarchy. And I think this underpins much of the uh, sectarian, ethnic, and tribal difference. It's not because sects and tribes hate each other for no reason. It's because they've been politicized in this game to establish a new kind of oligarchical power. The third thing, I think, which one has to think about is the armed forces and the uh, dilemma of security which now faces people in Iraq. In a sense, there's nothing more characteristic of the course of Iraqi politics and political history uh, since uh, the 1930s than the prominence of the Iraqi armed forces and of groups of Iraqi officers in determining the future of the country and indeed directly ruling the country uh, at certain times. And when you look at Iraq again now, there's a real dilemma, I think, about a dilemma of security. On the one hand, there's a fear of recreating a strong central military uh, apparatus. The example of the past is too close, uh, and the fear of many Iraqis is twofold. One, of course, that uh, it will dominate uh, Iraq in a way that uh, the Iraqi army did, therefore giving opportunities to people within it to assert themselves over the very fledgling democratic institutions uh, of the new Iraq. Uh, and also, of course, that it will become a prey to the politicization of Iraq. Politics moves into the Iraqi armed forces. Well, of course, one could argue politics has already moved in to the Iraqi armed forces, and they're quite ready, right to be concerned about it. You have the politicization of the security forces in terms of whom they answer to, and you have a vast array of official security forces answering to the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of uh, Interior, but also, of course, to others outside the ministerial apparatuses. So, again, a concern, in other words, about the danger of re-centering 
the Iraqi armed forces uh, in uh, the center of the Iraqi state. But at the same time, of course, that's balanced by a fear of autonomous militias, that without a strong central security force, and this was exactly the argument used by the British in the 1920s, without a strong central security force, you will have chaos, anarchy, uh, local militias, armed force used for political purposes, for communal support, for ethnic and sectarian and tribal uh, aims. And again, one doesn't have to look far into the pages of the press uh, in the last couple of years to see that that's a very real fear in Iraq in terms of the uncontrollability and the danger of Iraqi, uh, of what will happen to security forces in Iraq itself. And finally, there's the question of the political economy, the corrosive effect of oil. Uh, the prize, in a sense, that everyone could be argued to be waiting for is the, um, uh, the oil reserves of Iraq, which are perhaps the third largest in the world. Quite interestingly, of course, despite all the, um, the uh, clamor that went around it, the United States backed off uh, the original notion of privatizing uh, Iraqi oil. And in fact, uh, large, national oil, large international oil companies uh, advocated very strongly keeping the Iraqi state oil company in one piece. They didn't advocate keeping it in one piece for purely altruistic reasons. Uh, they kept argued keeping it in one piece because that was the way in which they dealt with oil companies. And what's interesting is that uh, when you look at the part played by oil now in the political economy of Iraq, there's a very controversial oil bill uh, before, which to come before the Iraqi parliament, has come before the Iraqi cabinet. Controversial because it seems to give international oil companies uh, extensive and long-lasting rights over uh, Iraqi oil and uh, Iraqi oil profits. And yet at the same time, part of the controversy is being generated by the fact of what it's being used for. And it's often been argued that one way of getting the, uh, the controversial aspects of the Iraqi oil bill through parliament and with a national consensus behind it, despite the misgivings of the part played or given to foreign oil companies within this and foreign oil concessions, is that precisely it's going to be a way of dividing the spoils. In other words, a way of ensuring that each community represented in its own particular way by its own particular leadership will get a share of the oil. So in a sense, oil revenues are again, one could argue, uh, being held out as a way of cementing a particular kind of social and political order uh, in Iraq. And some argue uh, and fear in Iraq that it will be used once again to reinforce the centralizing oligarchical pattern of uh, power in the Iraqi state. So I would end simply by saying that are, there are, in a sense, two specters haunting uh, Iraq uh, at the moment, which come out to some extent of its peculiar history, but to some extent also come out of this very Iraq that the British had set in motion uh, in the 1920s. First, the fear of fragmentation and civil war. Clearly, uh, it dominates the headlines. It dominates the fears of many Iraqis. In fact, what that comes out of, of course, is a fear that there will be no deal between uh, the elites uh, that you're looking at uh, emerging in Iraqi society. And there'll be such severe conflict within the different communities of Iraqi society uh, that no deal will be possible. In other words, the ideal terrain for uh, a civil war, anarchy, and the fragmentation of the state. But there's an equal specter, I would say, also haunting Iraq, which is the recreation of an authoritarian, centralized state, uh, justified precisely by the specter of fragmentation and the chaos of a failed state. So in some senses, 
harking back very much to the old British rationale for, yes, democracy would be nice, but order is better. And in some ways, that is a very current fear amongst many Iraqis. Thank you. This event was recorded live on March the 13th, 2007 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Dr. Charles Tripp. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.